and welcome to another episode of Rethinking Aloud, where today I'm joined by not three, um, but just one conversation partner. Because today I'm going to be talking with Suzanne Hansen, Intercultural Ministry Enabler in the Diocese of Leicester, and we're going to be talking about Black History Month, which you may or may not know is this month. October is Black History Month. Uh, And we're just going to think a little bit about why there's a Black History Month. Do we need one? Uh, and about how we tell the stories of history, uh, and perhaps a little bit about who gets to tell them. A little bit about Suzanne, she spent two years teaching in universities in Tanzania and Malawi on African colonial history and its legacies. Uh, She's also taught African-Canadian studies in Canada. So I'm actually hoping to learn myself, uh, to pick up new stuff myself from this conversation. So really excited for this. But let's start with the obvious questions. Um, Suzanne, Black History Month, why? Um, When and where did it start? And and why? Why is it so important? Good morning, John. It's uh, wonderful to be with you to discuss this really important issue. In terms of where and why did Black History Month get started, I think it's really important just to step back for a moment and Think about why history is important. Um, History is important because it teaches us about ourselves. Um, It's almost impossible to understand who we are, our sense of belonging, without having some understanding of where we have come from and how certain trends or practices got started, which impact upon how we live today. So if we don't have an understanding of our history, that's going to clearly have an impact on our understanding of our own identities and sense of belonging. That really helps us to understand why black history is important. And I say black history rather than black history month, because I think that it's so difficult for us to place histories within silos or perhaps pigeonhole them. It means that we're not really looking at our histories in an integrated or a comprehensive fashion. As much as we are a physical island um, living here in Britain, when we think about our histories, um, whether it's economic, political, social and cultural, we're not an island. Britain has had a formidable role in terms of global and world history. And to understand that, we can't do that without thinking about the way in which the African diaspora and African history has been a formidable part of that global history. So that's why it's important, because up until recently, we haven't really been telling that complete story. Um, The history of the African diaspora has often just focused upon Africans as being um, slaves or colonial subjects. And it's time for us to broaden that out, to actually think about all of those interconnections which have actually taken place. So in America, in the late 19, well, early 1970s, um, black students and educationalists decided it was time to tell this story, um, that it was important for people to understand the connections and the interrelationships which exist between peoples, cultures and nations. Black History Month came to the UK in 1980s for exactly that same reason, to enable us to develop a much fuller understanding of who we are and where we've come from. 
Wow. So in America, it's been going for kind of close to 50 years, probably. And even over here in the UK, it's been a thing for, for, four, for around about 40 years, you say. So uh, that's really interesting because I've only become aware of it um, much, much more recently. Um, so it started in America, as you say, um, sort of student driven or student and academic led, perhaps in its early phase. And I imagine there's loads of stuff um, about the civil rights movement, um, Martin Luther King, bus protests, segregation, Jim Crow, you know, Selma to Montgomery marches, the Voting Rights Act, the Ku Klux Klan, cotton fields, back to the Civil War. Yeah, they got loads to talk about. Over here in the UK, we haven't got nearly as much to talk about, have we? And I'm being slightly mischievous here to set up your response. That's fine. I think, in all honesty, we have far more to talk about in the UK than in America. That might be quite surprising to some of our listeners. But when you think about the extensive history of people of African descent in the UK, it stretches back thousands of years. There's archaeological evidence that there were people of African descent living in Britain during the Roman period. Um, They came to Britain as Roman soldiers. They lived here, had families here, worked here and were an integral part of British society. There is so much for us to learn in terms of the um, relationship between um, Britain and other parts of the world, particularly Africa, but also the way in which people of African descent have lived in the UK. There's archival uh, research in terms of the first noted individual of African heritage living in um, the Tudor period with Henry VIII. He was a musician. Um, His life is documented. There's a, a, a portrait of him, which is easy for people to access and to see. He petitioned Henry VIII for um, equal equal pay uh, for the work that he was doing. I mean, and I'm just really scratching the surface here. We can also move on and think about Britain's involvement in the slave trade. Britain was a leading, p- played a leading part in the transatlantic slave trade. Mm. After that, we have a history of colonialism and imperialism. So we have so much to learn in terms of thinking about why um, black history is important for us here in the UK. And that's really interesting because some of the stuff, yeah, the, the, the link with um, slavery, um, the, the, the legacy of empire and colonialism and all that kind of stuff is is kind of quite obvious, I would hope, to most people. But I, I didn't realise that there were black Roman citizens who were in the Roman army in these shores all the way back then. I mean, I, I just didn't know that. So are you saying that there's, well, there's clearly a a hidden history. Um, Is it even perhaps to an extent a suppressed history here in the UK that we're just many of us not aware of? I think it's both. I think for it to be hidden, in a sense, it means it has been suppressed in some ways, um, that the same energy has not um, been undertaken to inform people of what this history is all about, um, that the same attention 
due diligence hasn't been given to the lives of people who happen to be of African descent, who have undertaken marvellous and wonderful wonderful things in, in um, Britain, that their stories have been allowed um, to die. And there are so many examples of that. I mean, at the moment, we are once again in a position where we're about to reopen Nightingale hospitals. That's wonderful. But there's very little mention of Mary Seacole, who also um, was a nurse during the Crimean War, who went to the front um, to actually provide medical help and support for the soldiers that needed them. There are so many stories which are not being told and not being remembered and not and are not being celebrated. And it's really difficult for us to to know why is that the case? Why aren't we giving the same level of attention to these other stories, which is still all of them are part of British history. Mm-hmm. And do you think things are improving? Well, I'm just thinking, yeah, I went to primary school in, in the 1970s. Um, my kids are now young adults. Uh, I'd never heard of Mary Sagol. Um they learned about her in primary school. So are things getting better? Do you, do you sense an improvement? And not to say that we've arrived where we need to be, but is there is there a greater awareness, do you think? I think we are moving in the right direction, definitely. Particularly uh, this for this Black History Month, I've been really surprised by um, the number of documentaries which have been on television um, from historians such as David Olasoga, um, in terms of thinking about black history, a forgotten history, the work that he did also on um, Britain's involvement in the slave trade and the legacy of the slave trade in Britain. Uh, and he's not alone. There are other historians who are really bringing these stories um, to the forefront. And I do think that it is seeping out into wider, wider society as well. So I mm. think that progress has been made. Um, but as always, there's still further to go. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about um, the bits of some of the stories that we do know that we're not told, you know, almost like missing parts of a jigsaw. So I'm thinking back again, um, when I was when I was at school, you know, we were taught about the Industrial Revolution uh, and we were quite rightly taught about the exploitation of the white mill workers uh, by the white mill owners. Um, but I don't think it might have been a passing comment in a book about cotton coming into docks or on boats or something. But I don't think we really thought or encouraged to think at all about where the cotton came from uh, and the exploitation of black people working as slaves that got the cotton to us. Um, and so sometimes it seems like we're not joining up the dots within the stories that we are told. Absolutely. I think part of that relates to who is telling the story and why. Um There has been, as you know, um, a version of history which comes about basically from the dominant um, section of society, mainstream historians, which are focused on particular versions of history, which relate to their own interest in some regards. And um, I suppose the history that they want to teach. But as we um, begin to broaden out, as historians become much more diversified themselves, as there's more um, attention in society and activism in society for um, more comprehensive histories to be told, we do have new historians coming through who are actually really interested to research and to publish on those wider histories which haven't been taught before, um, enabling us to make those connections between um, 
the textile industry uh, in the UK with, for example, India or the cotton fields in America. Um, it's um, definitely as a result of the fact that we are diversifying those individuals who are in a position to research and teach this subject and then also able to gain airtime on the television so that it can be broadcast to a much wider audience. Mm. So I was hoping I've noticed, again, this is just sort of reflecting and thinking um, you know, prior to, to doing this podcast, um, but something I've noticed, you know, when we think about the abolition of slavery in this country, um, it really does tend to focus on what we're predominantly told about is the work, uh, and this is as true of in the church as it is uh, what you might be taught in, in school, um, but we tend to really focus on the, the work of William Wilberforce, uh, which in one sense is great. You know, Christian man motivated by his faith, campaigns tirelessly. I'm sure we'd all agree that he's a proper Christian hero. Um, but I don't, I really don't know much about slavery itself in this country at all. Um, in fact, I probably know more about slavery in America than I do about the history of slavery in Britain. Um, all I know is William Wilberforce and the conversion of the slave trader John Newton. Um, that's not great, is it? No, and I think you've just given us an example of the of the su suppression of history. Um, history isn't neutral, and it. it and contrary to what a lot of people think, it's not recorded by neutral people either. There are stories and messages that we want to get out there. And there are examples, and slavery being one of them, of stories which we feel are perhaps better forgotten and uh, not um, remembered in the way that we now recognise that we do need to do that. There is so much more to learn about slavery in the UK than just focusing purely on the abolition of it, and then just one person's role, as important as it was for William Wilberforce to petition Parliament on a yearly basis for the abolition of slavery, there is just so much more to learn about the nature of slavery in the UK and who is involved. Um, and thinking specifically from the perspective of Black History Month, what that does is it denies those individuals who are descendants of those African slaves, uh, the knowledge they need to enable them to be proud of that history, the way in which Africans themselves fought for their own freedom, those who gained their freedom, how many of them um, took part in and formed organisations and societies which actively worked towards the abolition of slavery. I'm thinking about the Sons of Africa here, which was a society um, developed and run by former African slaves uh, here in the UK with such infamous characters such as Olada Equiano or Otabar Kugawana, um, who went on to write about um, their own experiences as slaves, as being slaves, as a way of educating the British public as to what life was actually like. It was a way of countering so much of the propaganda which many of the slave owners um, had put forward in the press through the political system as to what life was actually like, uh, the violence, um, the excessive working hours um, that many people had to go through, the loss of liberty, what that meant as individuals. They wrote speeches, they wrote books, they petitioned the government, they were at the forefront of social 
um, charitable work for um, other people who were still living in that bondage. So I think it's really important that we do expand our understanding of what the nature of slavery um, entailed and who was involved in its abolition, because there's so much more than just William Wilberforce um, for us to learn about in that regard. And I wonder um, if perhaps the preoccupation with people like William Wilberforce or the sort of post-conversion John Newton, whether there's almost a subconscious um, why expiation of guilt that, you know, we look at these, we make these the heroic figures, and then we don't have to kind of delve too much into the fact um of everything else that was going on and the white suppression of the black slave. Um, so maybe there's a sort of subconscious um, thing being played out there. I don't know. I think so. But I think that we all benefit from actually understanding the nuances and the subtlety that's involved in history. Anybody mm. who studied history knows that there's rarely um, just two sides to a debate and there's rarely just two opinions, whether good, bad. Actually, there's lots of shades of grey also in there. And there's so much to learn in terms of how individuals, whether they were um, white British, how they responded themselves to slavery. There wasn't just one opinion and one approach. There was lots of resistance, lots of um, divergence in perspectives, uh, which come from white British people. So I think that for all of us, there is something to be learned by digging more deeply into our history, broadening the repertoire of people we're learning from, and including those voices which until recently have really been suppressed and silenced because it harms our understanding of who we are and where we've come from, not just for descendants of uh, people from um Africa, but for all of us, it, it skews our um, understanding of what has actually taken place. So, so we're embracing the complexity rather than just reducing things to, to a kind of a simplistic lens through which to, to view things. I mean, you, you mentioned there about um, generations or current generations uh, of people and thinking back about uh, where they come from and that. And I'm, I'm just trying to get myself... Um, into the head of, of a black kid at school and, and wondering what's it like to be, you know, the, now perhaps a third or fourth generation black British um, kid and for there to be no one or very few people like you in the history that you're taught at school. Um, that, that must be quite difficult. Well, I think once again, we've got to err on the side of not generalising what the experiences of black kids in school will be today, uh, because it will be different. It's different for um, children depending on where they are, the schools that they go to and their own particular background. I think that, of course, it's, it's important for all of us to have a better understanding of the history of Britain. Um, its involvement um, with different countries around the world and the presence of people of African origin in the UK. And I do think it is um, vitally important in terms of developing a sense of identity and a sense of belonging that black young kids in particular are given a more comprehensive and fuller understanding of that history. There is this, mis I think, misconception at present that um, most black people um, migrated to the UK as a result of the Windrush generation. And a lot of people think that at that point they became British citizens. But that's not the case. People were able to come on those ships, Windrush being one of them, because they already had 
British citizenship. They were British before they arrived. And I think enabling our young, younger generation to understand that actually you have a very long history of being British, uh, which goes back to the Caribbean and beyond, is important for them to know that actually they do have this dual history. They have an African heritage for some that's come via the Caribbean, and they also have a British history as well. Our histories are intertwined, and it's really important for all of us to appreciate that fact. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Um, going to try and move it into a bit of a church context now. Um, and this is all all turning into a bit of a confessional for me, really, isn't it? But um, I'm aware of Augustine, you know, Bishop of Hippo, uh, who you know, ironically is viewed as the father of Western Christianity, although was very much an African. Um, but after that, I'm probably not really aware of any great non-white figures in church history until the 20th century. Um, in fact, it's not until the Azusa Street revival in America uh, that kind of kickstarts modern day Pentecostalism that I could name a single black figure in church life, I think kind of post-Augustine. And I'm quite a church history nerd. Who are some of the figures I'm missing out on? And actually, where would I go to find their stories? Do you know, I think this is an example of the suppression of history that we have just been talking about. Um, It's really difficult to know. Um, As a person myself, British, um, educated here in in Britain, where where do we go to find that information? I do know of other denominations within the Christian faith where clearly there are different traditions, black theologians, African theologians, which clearly must have contributed to development of um, modern day Christian thought. But I don't know who they are. I can think of the church, the Ethiopian church, or the Egyptian Coptic church, but knowledge doesn't extend much beyond that. And I think here we have, once again, an area where we need to dig in and learn a little bit more. Um, Opportunities need to be given for the research, which has already already been done, to be um, broadcast, transmitted to a wider audience for us to continue with our own education and to start to think for ourselves. You know, I don't know anything about that. How might I be able to learn about um, other traditions within Christianity um, where their theologies are different to our own and who has contributed to that? So I think what you've stumbled upon there, John, is something which Um, is very much a real issue for us today and an area that we need to look at in more in greater detail. So there really is something going on here, a theme emerging and and I guess the same might be true around issues of gender as well Um, but there's something going on here about who gets to tell their story or or who controls what stories are told, Um, you know, who, who determines the dominant narrative. Absolutely. Um, and I think part of understanding that is in, is actually in the question of understanding that we do have dominant narratives and who gets to uh, frame that dominant narrative tends to be those who are the elite in our society. Today, we tend to use that word white privilege as a way of grappling with who is controlling and constructing Um, the way in which we understand um, certain issues, the way in which we construct um, our frame of reference for it. So, yes, we do need to think more uh, clearly about who are are people involved in um, dissemination of that 
of that information. For us within a church context, we need to look more closely at our, our colleges, those who are involved in training, um, our theologians, our, our clergy. Uh, in society, we would be looking at universities, the political system in terms of what they deem to be um, worthwhile of being placed on our national curriculum. So this is a really huge subject and it involves um, some very deep-seated um, processes and institutions, which I think, in all fairness, we need to start to challenge as to how they may be able to broaden not just the curriculum, but also who's teaching that curriculum. Mm-hmm. Can I bring on to a really quite a tricky one for, for us as Christians, um, the great missionary movements. Uh, and I'm particularly thinking here of the explosion of British missionary activity in the Victorian era. Obviously, missionary movements predate that and all the rest of it. Um, but thinking particularly about them, because they tend to come in for particular criticism. If it wasn't for those missionaries, humanly speaking, the gospel might not have reached some of the places it did reach. Um, you know, they opened hospitals and schools. They told people about Jesus. People were saved, etc. But it rode on the coattails of empire and colonialization and all kinds of other evils, and sometimes seems to have exported um, not only a Christian message, but also a whole load of cultural assumptions. How do we assess both the benefits and the damage done by those movements? I think it is really difficult for us to undertake that assessment. Um, What I'd like to do in terms of responding to that is take a little bit of creative license uh, and expand, um, I think, the context in which we're talking, the context that we're talking about. And if we think about the term black as not just being individuals from um, of African heritage, but black as in terms of an oppressed group of people or people who have struggled for freedom, I'd like to reflect on my... Um, experience of this in Canada um, some years ago. My husband and I, we spent just over five years living in Canada and we arrived at the tail end of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was set up by the government to investigate um, what had taken place during the residential school system. The residential school system operated not just in Canada, um, but in other, should we call them new world contexts, such as um, Australia, um, even even the US, for over 100 years. They were established by the state, but they, in the Canadian context, were run by missionaries and the church with the sole purpose of civilising young Indigenous Canadian children. And to civilise them, that was interpreted as being um, preaching the gospel, making them Christians. Young children were torn away, often quite violently, from their homes, from their family, from everything they had ever known and placed in these cold, sterile institutions that they called schools. Boys had their hair cut. They were, all of them given new names, They were not allowed to speak their indigenous languages. They were given new clothes and they were in that context taught about Christianity. 
For those who transgressed any of the school rule, school rules, they were given severe disciplines and um, <clears throat> often they, that discipline could be quite violent in its nature. As part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, there is an acknowledgement that l lots of the children had actually um, suffered sexual abuse as well. The residential school system came to an end in 1998. And I could actually remember learning in school at that time about the Maastricht Treaty, so on and so forth. It, it punctuated with me that this is actually living history. There are people my age who have been through this experience. That was their schooling. Now, did I meet Indigenous Canadians who were Christian and are Christians today? Yes, I did. Did I meet Indigenous Canadians who would not step foot into a church building? Yes, I did. Did I come into contact with communities who are still suffering the legacies of um, residential schools and the involvement of the church? Broken societies, parents who don't know how to parent because they were never parented themselves, alcohol abuse, um, violence in community. I came across all of that and I find it really difficult to know how do we assess the involvement of the church with that community. So what I would like to do is to leave that with the audience, the people who are listening today, to take that away, to think about what is that legacy of Christianity in a place like Canada and, and broader afield in Australia, um, that we can think about it within the African context as well. What actually was, what was that gospel message that we were teaching? Well, yeah, let's leave that one. Let's, let's commit to continue to ponder on it. Um, we, we sometimes think that history, and perhaps this is because of the way that we're taught history or because of um, the, the way that we, we view documentaries and things like that about history. We often think of history as being the stories of the big people, you know, the movers and the shakers, the people whose names we remember. Um, but it's not. And I always think that, you know, when you see those local history books um, that often arise out of small groups of working class people sharing their stories in groups convened by local councils back in the day when local councils had money for that kind of thing. Um, but there was quite, I, I remember I, my mum loves these books and um, you, you read them, you get a fascinating insight into the lives of ordinary people. Um, have we as the church yet really paid attention to the everyday faith stories of the Windrush generation and of how they found church in this country as first generation uh, immigrants. Uh, I wonder if there's a lot still to be learned from that and the welcome uh, that was or wasn't offered and how uh, and how they responded to that. Yeah, where's the learning from that? And are we even listening to the stories of ordinary black Christians today? You know, that's sort of the, not, not the stories of the great and the good and the big and the famous, but the everyday faith stuff. Um, I, I don't know. What do you think? I think we are just beginning this journey, that we are starting to listen to those stories. I stumbled the other day upon um, the University of Birmingham's website where they have commissioned some research into those stories. It's ongoing work at the moment. Um, I think we're just beginning to develop those questions and starting to reflect upon how might we be able to answer them. Clearly in the past, 
we haven't done enough listening. We weren't even in a position to, well, we weren't asking those questions. But now I think we are, the tide is changing and we are gaining momentum to recognise that there's so much work to be done here in terms of, firstly, listening to those stories. Secondly, what do we learn from them? And thirdly, how do we begin to apply that learning in our context? Um, so in short, we, we're only just commencing that journey and there's a lot more work to be done. Mm. So how can all of us you know, who seek to be disciples of Jesus, white or black, make sure that all voices are heard and welcomed uh, and become part of the faith narrative that future generations are told? I mean, what, what can we do now? Um, well, as an educator, my go-to is always, well, let's start reading. Um, let's start broadening our understanding of the issues. There are more and more books which have been published um, by people who are of um, Afro-Caribbean or African descent who are writing about their stories. Why not pick up one or two and start to read about them? Or alternatively, we can speak to people who we come into contact with in our churches, at our places of work, in our local communities, who I'm sure would, in many cases, welcome an opportunity to share their experiences um, <clears throat> about what they have found um, in the church regarding their the extent to which they have felt welcomed and how that welcome may be improved. So I think there's very much um, an experiential dimension to it. We can start to open up those lines of communications as individuals. As churches, we can reach out to organisations which are actively involved in helping um, these particular communities we are talking about, we can start to work with them in partnership. Uh, and that's a good way of um, learning about what their experiences have been, um, what their current needs are today. So I think we can undertake this work on various levels um, <clears throat> and using different means in which to do it. Um, our starting point has to be, I think, educating ourselves and then once we have educated ourselves we need to give ourselves a moment for reflection as to how does this transform who we are how do we actually implement what we've learned and respond to it because if we don't adapt if we don't change then our learning is complete it, it's meaningless it's just an academic exercise um, and we are called as Christians not just to be hearers of the word but doers of the word so it actually has to change our practices and I think yeah that's that's how we need to go about it mm. so do the learning and then apply it into our situations in life absolutely I want to finish with a, a bit of a fun question to end with. Um, just wondering if you could, uh, and again, this is me rather selfishly trying to um, increase my, my knowledge base, um, but it might be fun for our listeners if you could give a little, perhaps two or three sentence biography of, um, let's say, three black Christians from history uh, who, who, yeah, who I and, and the listeners would really benefit from finding out about. Um, so three inspirational black Christians who someone listening to this podcast could go away and Google or get a biography of and get really excited by. Okay, well, I stumbled across um, Harriet Tubman when I was out in Canada teaching 
um, because of her work. I found Harriet Tubman to be just perhaps one of the most inspirational African-American women I had ever previously read about. And what struck me most about her was the way in which her faith enabled her to undertake the most dangerous rescue missions of other slaves um, living in um, the slave states of America. And after um, the change in the law, the way in which her journeys to rescue those slaves from the deep south all trekking completely across the continent of America to take them to safety in Canada, just completely awe-inspiring. And I love the way she writes about the way in which God guided her. I think she's such an inspiration for all of us, and I would heartily recommend her uh, her memoirs for people to read. And it's so easily accessible. You can just Google her name on um, Wikipedia and she'll come up. The second one is John Marrett, and his story is also very similar, and he comes from um, the same time period um, in terms of late 1700s. Um, He too was a former slave, became uh, a Christian and subsequently a preacher. And what I loved about his memoir was the way in which his faith enabled him to do such amazing things He travelled the globe and that just blew my mind that you could cross the Atlantic as many times as this man did. Um, Coming from where he came from, he did end up spending quite a considerable amount of time living and working in London. He was asked to preach and he found that amazing. It's like, why would British people uh, want me, a former slave, to come and preach? And it was because he had such amazing um, get the word out. Uh, oratory skills. Um, his preaching was amazing, and he spent a number of years here. But what I loved about him was the fact that he himself went on a journey of forgiveness, learning that do you know not all white people are the same, um, and I too have to come to a place where I forgive what has happened to me, and that's in an integral part of his um, own spiritual discernment and journey. And it's an awesome memoir to read um, from that time period. My third is actually not very historical. It's Desmond Tutu. Um, But I wanted to suggest him because I just thought it was an amazing example of the way in which today as Christians, this um, coming together of being an activist for racial justice um, alongside being um, Christians at the forefront of seeking to profess a Christian message can come together, um, that they're not separate entities, that they are part and parcel of our Christian walk of life. Just that um, recognition that can we really be Christians if we are not actively pursuing social justice in the societies in which we live. And I think we have so much to learn from Desmond Tutu and his own personal life experience of journeying along that road. Fantastic. So we've got Harriet Tubman, John Marrett and Desmond Tutu. Uh, so there's our homework. Um, do some do some reading and some exploring around those. Well, thank you so much, Suzanne, for joining me and um, starting a conversation about history, uh, about how we read it, uh, how we tell it, Uh, and particularly for helping us to think about black history um, in the context both of wider history and our own um, specific church histories uh, and the Christian tradition. 
It's been really good to talk. Uh, this has been Rethinking Aloud, uh, podcasting from the Diocese of Leicester. And until next time, um, stay safe and be blessed.